Um, when it comes down to a culturally based practice, when it comes down to having a shaman, a witch doctor, a curandero, if you will, you always have some deeper connection to where you're from. And that doesn't just mean specifically by land or by location, but that means the people that you live with as well. It actually binds the community together. Hello and welcome to Drinks With God, a podcast about alternative theological experiences, death, and life. All of the following content is based on each interviewee's own personal experiences and is meant to be educational, not confrontational. Welcome. Today we've got with us Christian Brown. Mm-hmm. Christian Brown, who is going to talk with us about his time down in the jungle. <laughs> um, a little bit more specific than that. And we're having hot toddies today. Thank you and good morning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, typical morning drink. And we're going to delve into a couple different experiences he had down there, but first off, why don't you tell us a bit about what your research was and where exactly you were. So, okay, Milo, um, back in uh, my college research project, uh, it was a a three-year-long project where I was looking over... uh, Uh, Just louder. A little louder? Yeah, just lean over here. So I was looking at um, investigating a Creole language that had formed very recently in the Peruvian jungle, uh, specifically in the Tamshiaco Tawayo Basin. Um, so I, I had acquired funding to do an expedition down there uh, and record uh, the language itself with help of a guide, of a translator, and so that I could bring back uh, samples uh, of a lexicon a list of about 12 to 1500 words and I would dissect it and analyze it to other Creole studies. So I would look into what I found in linguistics, how this language formed, what what it shows in comparison to other Creole languages. Uh, And with that there was also uh, an experience of shamanism and cultural background that had a huge role to play into the language. Great. Very cool. Very cool. So, um, just as a bit of a background, what would be some other languages that, you know, um, you saw that tied into it? Would that have been, um, like French, Spanish, English? This would be considered by, uh, uh, a, a, a Spanish Creole because it's very heavily Spanish, like a good, uh, majority of the language can't really give it like a percentage because based on where in the jungle, which village you go, it has varying degrees. Um, we call it a uh, Creole continuum, or other academics have used the term a continuum as like a spectrum. So on one end or one village, it may be mostly Spanish, almost entirely Spanish, but you can go elsewhere in the jungle and you will find uh, a good majority of other languages that'll 
take up a large portion of that lexicon. Just move um, the microphone closer to you. That's oh, right. okay. So, for example, um, there's languages uh, that are native and from uh, language families. They're from the jungle. These include Cocomigas, uh, uh, Agua, Orarinos, um, Cocama specifically uh, was very prevalent. Uh, and other languages I actually have listed here. Yes, you brought a um, a poster from your initial presentation. Yes, yeah. this is the presentation that I did both at uh, St. Lawrence University and also at the uh, Society of Cross-Cultural Studies in Oregon that I was uh, showing my data to back in February of 2016. Excellent. Very cool. Yeah. And um, so how... How indigenous was language? I know you said that it was Spanish influences. Was it largely indigenous, cross-indigenous, or was it both? So there's that, – that depends how deep in the history we'd like to get here. Well, um, we can. <laughs> a lot of it is very Spanish, but the language itself is extremely new. Okay. Like the lingua franca, as, as I could put it, uh, or the lingua local, is essentially a creation of um, – historical background from the 1800s, the discovery and actual exploration into the Amazonian jungle, the contact that was made with the natives there, uh, and the settlement of the different villages that would start out as either plantations or as um, uh, uh, camps for acquiring um, acquiring rubber from the rubber trees. Yes, that was... Most, most of these natives that were kind of hauled in together and used as a workforce for rubber barons and industry workers, they would eventually be uh, the first uh, villagers that would set up these villages as a result of a humanitarian effort in the 1930s when these camps were actually given rights and were, were saying like, here, we can't treat them like they're just... In indigenous peoples that should be uh, slaughtered at the expense of big business, but they have rights. We give them communities. And this was a gentleman in the 1930s, a humanitarian lawyer who did this. Uh, his name is escaping me right now, but I have it over here for later uh, if you want to reference it. And pretty much from 1930s to the 1940s, you had villages such as um, Buena Vista and uh, Esperanza and, and a culmination of about 24 other villages actually set up and begin their uh, uh, housing in connection to the main city. Throughout 1930s to the 1940s, that's around the time you start seeing this conglomeration, this combination, if you will, of Spanish being used with the local dialect, which, um, for lack of a better term, but as it was told to me by the um, the translator who I worked with directly, uh, who was uh, Kokama, uh, born from um, uh, uh, the Tamshiaco Basin. She told me that anything that is non-Spanish is identified as just jungle talk. Okay. Or just lengua local. Non-Spanish vocabulary, non-Spanish grammar, anything that is anything else. No matter the variation or, or origination. Yes, which is a mesh of different languages and different language roots. Um, the idea or what was told to me is that um, a lot of the spoken history was kind of lost 
um, through the forming of these villages, through when the rubber industry kind of made its prevalence in this area. So whatever has remained through uh, just vocal, verbal teachings through generation, uh, little language roots such as like Quechua find their way and you'll find Quechua expressions like um, uh, an example I can think of off the top of my head is you would refer to a friend as a pata, which is like a bird's foot. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's other examples that I have with me also. All right. Um, Hope that answered your question. No, no, Sorry, it that was a lot of information. No, no, <laughs> it, it definitely did. And that, that was an excellent survey of uh, uh, why you were there, what you were doing, and just a quick trip through the jungle, as it were. Yeah. And uh, about how long were you there? You de- went there for one trip or I, two? I was there for one month, uh, but that wasn't the first time I was down there. I was down there previously. Uh, through my high school experience um, as, a, as a research project uh, where a bunch of independent research students had the opportunity to go down there and basically explore with their own projects and kind of get a first experience. Um, so I was well acquainted with um, Paul Beaver, the owner of Amazonian Expeditions, the man who hosted me uh, in, in this particular region in the Peruvian Amazon. Um, and the staff as well who helped guide me while I was down there. Yes, you were telling me that was the, uh, the touring group that had started as a bird watching. Yep. Yep. Yeah. This is, uh, Paul Beaver is, um, uh, the scientist who began the, uh, his company, Amazonian Expeditions, which is set up and says set up shop in, uh, the Tamshiaco Tawaiyo region in Peru since, uh, the late eighties, early nineties and such. Um, and it's, a tourist company. They have a lodge set up right there uh, next to Chino Village, which is the closest uh, indigenous village from the lodge. And then they have uh, an Amazon Research Center, which is, I believe, another two hours by motorboat away, um, but a very different location uh, in relation to where I did my research. All right. Excellent. So um, now just because this is indeed a show that mostly deals with uh, religious experiences and uh, cult- socio-cultural, religious, you know, bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, I know that you'd uh, had a couple different experiences along those lines. Yes. So, while I was basically interviewing uh, villagers left and right and saying, where did you learn... Uh, River Spanish, where did you learn the lingua local? Um, and basically them telling me their tales of their grandfathers or grandmothers knew Quechua or Yagua. I also had the chance to interview with a shaman. Uh, and his name was Adolfo. Um, and he gave me a series of both recipes of different uh, medicines that he would use. He would forage uh, the recipes from the jungle, just basically in his backyard bring it back and would cook any kind of concoction for a specific remedy. So this included things uh, such as um, if you have malaria, if you were um, had arthritis, if you wanted birth control, for instance. These were natural remedies from the jungle that he would concoct um, for various purposes. Essentially, your local witch doctor. Excellent. Um, but it goes a little bit more spiritual than that because there's... Apparently, a whole 
rite of passage way and a, an appropriate way to be a what he called a curandero, um, which is essentially a good shaman, as he described. Um, and this is in contrast with what would be a bad shaman or a brujo or a bruja. Okay, brujaria is something I've come across before. Yes, so... uh, it's, I believe, Spanish for witch or, or Wiccan of such. Um, but it is in, in the origins of witchcraft, whereas a curandero, uh, parts of which are quechua in root, which means the cure of the people. So okay. the idea would be that this person who would uptake the task of being the shaman, the knowledge man, if you will, the wise man, of knowing these remedies, of knowing how to make these uh, medicines, and knowing the practice, the proper rituals, they would act as your kind of friendly neighborhood prescriptionist, if you will. All right. So passively using the abilities of nature as opposed to actively enacting your will on it. Um, yes, it's okay. a very passive approach. Whereas I believe the description, if you want to consider it an active approach, that is more of a bruhiric approach. Yeah, that always... Bruja would seek vengeance or seek uh, ill will on another person. Things like... Or seek, forcing... ch or seek change at the at yeah, least. Yeah, seek change at least. Like stories that were told to me was uh, this uh, shaman Adolfo. He knew a bruja who tried to... Uh, kill one of the villagers and try to have a tree fall on them, for instance. Okay. Uh, another one, or, or typical stories involve uh, luring other villagers into the water and having them drown. Things like that. Okay. More so, witchcrafty yeah. nature. Passive versus active use of nature always seems to be the line between, uh, like witch doctor or like witchcraft. Yeah. So. All yeah, right. I'll I'll definitely agree with you on that. <laughs> So uh, that and obviously that kind of intent also has a lot to do with personality. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely has to do with, uh, I mean, rumors and the kind of horticultural society you have down here. It's um, a lot of people uh, can be very watching each other's back or it's very um, community oriented and kind of playing around with gossip and it's not very, uh, or I should say, it's very inclusive, kind of, in a yep. way. Close-knit. And do you think that that is partially because of the terrain that those uh, that the society necessarily grows up in? Or? I mean, definitely, yeah. Um, I mean, for goodness sakes, this place, these villages are basically four hours by motorboat away from the nearest city. Yeah. Uh, um, they're inter interspersed villages. But they keep communication with each other, and they're all in contact, and they visit each other. Um, but the largest population of any one of these villages, I would say, is probably Buena Vista, which has a population of around five to 600 people. Um, so it's close-knit community living in the jungle, basically. All right. Yes. So um, in terms of linguistic development, I know that you'd said that there was definitely a bit of a cultural and a... Uh, I want to, I guess, uh, not quite, was there a bit of religious influence as well? Or was it just strictly cultural you um, saw? Or The only religious influence is what was taught from shaman to shaman. Right. Um, and that's it. However, that influence is very much based off of which cultural background you're talking about. So, for instance, um, I found in uh, a local village while I was doing 
my research, this village was called uh, Diamante de Siete de Julio, which is literally called Diamante the 7th of July, the day that it was founded. It's part of its own name. And there were more prevalent Ororinos and Yagua speakers in this village as opposed to where I started in Chino village or even up more north uh, towards Buena Vista where there are more Quechua speakers. And the idea of the shaman is to kind of act as your uh, religious and cultural um, scholar, if you will, an unofficial scholar where they go out and they learn all of these languages. The reason they're able to do all of this work in the jungle is a part of the ritual work where when they're asking for a blessing from a certain spirit or they're doing a healing ritual, they have to sing, but they have to sing in the language of the spirit where it comes from. So Adolfo spoke something like nine languages, okay, um, including Spanish, including the lengua local as its own dialect in this region. But he spoke very fluently Ororinos, Yagua, and Kokama, uh, those that are coming to my head right now. But what he would do is during a healing ritual, say if someone had bronchitis or fever, he would um, basically call upon a certain spirit that he would think would be necessary to ask for their blessing to heal an individual. And he would sing uh, in that language to that spirit so that they may understand as kind of like their calling. Yes. So it is, it's spirit-specific, but it's also cultural-specific. All right. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. They're sounding a, more and more like they've got the same sort of training that, uh, like, rabbis definitely would. Like, old-school rabbis. <laughs> uh, I'm not too familiar. Elaborate? <laughs> um, well, just uh, having a varied background, um, varied cultural background, multiple a strong language background for more than just their tribe, oh. as well as uh, singing out yeah. all of the main... <laughs> yeah, I mean, most religious practices, whenever you have some kind of ritual, it's very common to see it being performed in another language or the language of its origin or the language of its cultural origin, something of that manner, um, all of which are prevalent here. Um, I would say, though... Um, that this uh, uh, work done by the shaman, it's kind of a dying uh, unofficial profession. Yes. Uh, there's not really anyone who will take up the mantle of responsibility, if you will, of going out and learning these languages and learning the recipes and learning uh, the, the practices of, of singing and doing healing rituals. So it's usually handed down from father to son or uh, father to stepson, however you will. It's usually a family-inclined practice. Okay. Um, maybe that's the same and or differs from your typical rabbi. <laughs> uh, I've seen it vary from uh, temple to temple. Mm -hmm. But the uh, that actually also, um, there's another question. Uh, how much uh, missionary influence did you see, either um, culturally or linguistically? So there was a very prevalent missionary uh, presence in this part of the jungle. And this was throughout uh, 30s and 40s while the villages were essentially starting their upbringing. Uh, pretty much every village there would be a church. Um, in some villages it would be a Catholic church. In other villages it would be a Protestant church. 
but there are churches very well prevalent in these villages and many of the villagers are either catholic or protestant but mostly christian it's not seen as if you do this practice you are of this religion or they don't see it as like foreign or strange it's still very much a part of the village and village life um it's more of just kind of we need to go to a prescriptionist. Oh, let's go to Adolfo. He has some remedy for us. Okay. So kind the, of thing. The two mix well because they're both seen as part of the same, you know, working machine of... Yeah. There's a, a very interesting mesh when it comes to how this village interacts contemporarily with uh, the urban world and the, and the globalized world being so cut off where it is. Um, for instance, there is a local jail and police... Uh, uh, station where there are officers who try and basically limit activity of poachers in the region. Uh, there is a clinic and local hospital uh, in Buena Vista village. There is um, a marketplace for tourists. So it is very in connection with uh, the city of Iquitos, the closest urban city. Um, but also being secluded where it is, it's got its own kind of uh, bush ritual or or backyard history that everyone's very well aware of and very acclimated to so it's very much a, a mixture of both and i think that's really the result of when it comes down to it um how these villages formed in the first place but also the lingua franca the fact that it's so heavily spanish or, or, or uh, spanish uh, influenced i mean to get a little uh, uh, background, um, when I was doing my re research, I was looking up, uh, and I mentioned this earlier, a Creole continuum. What that specifically means is you can have um, what are called uh, a basolect and an acrolect. Okay. So these are essentially um, two ends of the spectrum going from one end, let's say the acrolect is entirely Spanish, and there's like no version of... Uh, any any other roots or any other language in this spoken um, version. The acrolect is essentially just one end of the spectrum. Your basilect is the complete other end of the spectrum, where you would have um, essentially all roots of non-Spanish. So you would have entire meshes of um, in the category of river Spanish or the lingua local of this region. You would have Kokama, you would have Quechua, you would have Yagua. All of those root grammar, uh, syntax, and lexicon would be in the basilect. What you see in the Creole continuum is not strictly acrolect or basilect. You see a mesolect, somewhere in between. Okay, so it's almost like a perfect balance. Do you think that's because there were such a wide variety of people meshed together in those yeah. rubber? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You have uh, at the beginning, in the, in the earliest contacts of history, the Kokama and Kokamijas tribes, they were the ones who made contact with the French and the Spanish uh, and the English who set up shop basically in creating the city of Iquitos, which was primarily made as a rubber industry port. So during majority of the 1800s, this is late 1800s, uh, from 1850s to 1890s, when the city of Iquitos really took off as a port city, you had the British Peruvian uh, company set up shop and start the river barons, uh, the rubber barons in this industry 
here in the city of Iquitos. They sent expeditions out, and they sent uh, different uh, parties to go out into the jungle, search for rubber trees, and the natives that were there, they would basically give them shelter and say, here, we'll set up a camp for you, we'll give you food, we'll, we'll take care of you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did this so that they would exchange labor for uh, essentially goods and services coming in from uh, the British or the Spanish, whoever would set up shop in their uh, rubber baron ports. Um, now there is a little bit of more dissected history when it comes to why some indigenous decided to be a part of the labor camps or the rubber camps and some who did not, but we can get into that a later time unless you really want to know. Um, well, I just want to go back a little bit more to the, uh, the ethnobotany that you had some firsthand accounts with. Yes. Um, in terms of what you observed firsthand, did you get to go on any of those, um, gathering trips with Adolfo or um so he he did um a cleansing ritual for me uh, that was about the 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 experience I had he essentially had a series of tobacco leaves um which is seen as a way of signaling the other spirits to come to you tobacco is used as one of those remedies to kind of signal the spirits to come and begin the ritual so there's a lot of tobacco involved. Um, there's other concoctions where you would have uh, local moonshine, if it were. Uh, I think it's called Sacha Sacha. It could be wrong, uh, so don't quote me on that. Um, oh my goodness, I'm trying to think. There's a specific drink that they make out of sugarcane that I can't remember at the moment. Um kind of like a mimosa but it's basically uh the sugar cane is fermented and and you would make jungle beer um masato it's called that's what i was thinking of uh they would make local masato and include that in a series of herbs like using garlic or or anything from garlic let's say to ayahuasca (laughs) and anything in that spectrum so that's that's a very wide spectrum (laughs) yeah um i have a list it's at my house right now, and I can send that to you on a later day. I know it's there, where it actually has specific uh, plants uh, that were used. Um, but anyway, uh, pretty much what would happen was um, Adolfo would sing a poem in the language of whatever spirit he believed would be most useful or most helpful. So I believe... Uh, in his words, what he would describe for someone who has, let's say, arthritis, he would call the spirit of the lightning um, to give them energy or to um, essentially uh, give them a bit of a shock. Um, or the spirit of the toad to give them strong legs or strong body. All right. um, and he would sing in the language of his choosing for the spirit of his choosing, pretty much blow tobacco in your face and yeah, pretty much do that until he believed the uh, spirit made its presence known and thought that you would pretty much be set up to take the remedy. All right. Because the idea is you have to prepare your spirit before you can take the remedy. Um, but that's not strictly spirit, it, depending on 
what treatment he's offering for you. That could be a preparation of both spirit, mind, and body. So for instance, you may have to fast your diet for a while before taking a certain remedy. And actually, I did want to ask again about ayahuasca, because I know that comes from the region, in yep. fact, from... Yep, uh, the ayahuasca Adolfo specifically knows how to take the vine and brew it uh, just the way that uh, you're supposed to, so you actually create the concoction. And he also dilutes it, or I guess this is the best way to dilute it, with uh, moonshine, Okay. because the alcohol acting as a solute basically drains all of the ayahuasca from the vine itself. So it makes a more concentrated dose. Yes. I know that, um, I, now where were you? I know that Benisteriopis capi is what you're most commonly going to come across, unless you're in like the western basin. Um, capi, yaye, ayahuasca being several different colloquial terms yeah. for ayahuasca. Um, are, are you asking for the location where I was or? Yes, um, mostly just because I'd be curious to know exactly what sort of. Okay, so I have a map. All right, we have <laughs> I a map. Could, I, could, I could show you and tell you. All right, um, just because I know in the Western Basin, there's another, I think it's Banastepriopos inebrians, and that is only different, I believe, in fact, that it doesn't flower. But I think... Actually, if I could just clear some things let's here. Let's clear the way. whiskey and the yeah, honey. Yeah, and let's the, clear and this the, for a moment. And, and the honey. I'll show you exactly where I was. Spatial map that actually shows exactly right. where these villages are. We have an um, interspatial map. Yeah, so the city of Iquitos here, this is right here in the northeastern uh, basin, um, which is off of the Amazon River specifically, but in the Loreto region here. Um, okay. So the city of Iquitos is north, and I traveled south down to these villages here, Buena Vista, Chino Village, uh, San Pedro, Diamante, Esperanza, and Charo. So you might have actually been. Ex um, did you did you have any ayahuasca, or did you just watch him make the uh, the, the tea out of the bark? Uh, I actually watched him prepare what he had to make the ayahuasca. I mean, I've held it in my hand from when I yep. was interviewing him. I didn't try any of it myself. Yep. I, I didn't think that would be appropriate. Uh, for uh, what I was specifically focusing on in linguistics. But uh, I can tell you... It's a vine, uh, bark, similar looking, uh, it went dried to um, cinnamon, actually. Cinnamon mm -hmm. stick. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's what it looked like to me. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, this was all right in here. This is the northeastern portion of Peru that borders uh, both the... Northwesternmost part of Brazil and to the north, Colombia. All right. Uh, that is the Loreto region. Right. And uh, I know that it does affect the brain by producing harmine, among several other chemicals, um, which essentially what it does is it inhibits, um, it inhibits GABA. There's either, um, is it guanamine? Guanidine. Uh, my my neuro neurochemistry is not my strong suit, but essentially Nor just is it, mine. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of, essentially just kind of keeps the brain from not sending signals. So it just is unable to put the brakes on itself. Just is yeah. unable to have any filters. There's a lot of stimuli going on essentially, and it's it's more it's unable to not process stimuli, um, or not 
reassess memories that it has within itself or any any thoughts. So you're just kind of numb and just have to express anything. But also, because everything's happening at once, you cannot judge anything, which is why a lot of people talk about being at peace. Yeah. I know that DMT is um, a chemical in one of the... One of the plants that's normally mixed with ayahuasca, but yep. I couldn't remember. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head which one that is, which plant that is. I can't tell you off the top of my head either right now, but I can send you the list that I made, and this was uh, essentially a verbal account from Adolfo himself of the recipes that he uses. And if you'd like, we can cross-reference what those plants are, genus and species, on another day. Yeah. We could do that. Um, Botany is something I am always excited about. But yeah. was there something specific that you helped him do? Um, was there any any chemical um, escapades that you went on? Not that you took anything, but I mean, that you helped him brew anything. Um, other than for lack of a better uh, word, the, the patient who would be receiving a blessing uh, would basically uh, smoke tobacco to kind of signal the spirit. Um, and that's kind of it. But he did also make another concoction for me, which was to him essentially an elixir of luck. Um, Useful. And yeah. Uh, and it, this was because of my interest pretty much trying to research the language. He kind of thought it would be all right if he'd give me uh, good fortune in my travels. So, it, I mean, it was, it was a drink made out of uh, pretty much... Garlic, moonshine, and a couple other herbs and recipes. Um, not too many hallucinogens were used in that. Um, but it was all basically hand-picked and hand-grown from his backyard in the jungle. Yes. Now, if only my feeble garden <laughs> mirrored that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, any thoughts on just the climate of having a which doctor presence, as opposed to having a separation between oneself and being able to have a, like, I guess a hands-on approach to the divine, to healing, to being able, most people here wouldn't just go out and just grab some tree bark and chew on it. They'd go over to get a, a synthetic, um, isolated version of a chemical as opposed to the actual plant. Okay. So what I'll say is uh, a comparison essentially... Uh, between the globalized and the non-globalized form of medicine taking, if you will. And when it comes down to a culturally based practice, when it comes down to having a shaman, a witch doctor, a curandero, if you will, you always have some deeper connection to where you're from. And that doesn't just mean specifically by land or by location, but that means the people that you live with as well. It actually binds the community together. Um, one of the biggest things that I found when I was working in looking with researching this specific uh, river Spanish in the region was that everyone understood that the uh, curanderos were to be respected, that everyone knew that if Adolfo was in town, like, hey, we could, like, now would be the time to uh, see if uh, he can do something about my arthritis. Or it, And they were very uh, eclectic with his scheduling as well, because the thing about a curandero is they leave for long periods of time. 
But I mean, that's with any very close knit uh, society, especially a horticulturalist society where um, you're growing your your herbs and uh, basically raising your own cows and chickens and living off the land. I think you find much more prevalent roots with language, much more prevalent roots with religion, and a very non-official form of medicine taking, uh, as opposed to the very, what I would uh, condone as your strict official by the book Western medicine. Um, so if you're going to do hands-on work with a shaman or any kind of religious experience that has remedies from the jungle, whether that be hallucinogenic or not, I would say you want to cross-reference with what we understand in Western medicine from a, a botany point or from a genus and species point and just see why they're doing it. Just see what is it that you believe this will do because the belief in what it has done for centuries or for time that these remedies have been used, that's what's important to uh, 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 these communities. That's what's important to the curanderos and to their patients. That this is the way we've always done it. It's very tradition set. Excellent. And um, so just the personal um, connection to it as well as the tradition of it is just as important as the intense knowledge base that's passed on. I would say that's the root of it. You don't have the knowledge if you don't go to someone in your community. If you don't go to someone who knows this, essentially it's kind of seen as one and the same. Yes. Like it's it's non-inseparable. Um, you have to go to a cultural specialist in your region, official or unofficial, to learn these practices because they're the ones who are tasked with keeping the knowledge. It's not an institu it's not an institution thing because it's um it's Adolfo's thing, or it's yes. this guy down the street, yes. or it's my it's, dad's. It would be a family institution, if anything. It would be Adolfo learned it from his grandfather, learned it from his so-and-so on and on. The lineage carries the knowledge. So then likely if somebody from outside of a family line wanted to learn it, they would have to be officially adopted into a family. Yep. Uh -huh. It would have to be adopted uh, in some form or another. I mean... Uh, usually, I, I know that Adolfo learned how to become a curandero as a result of uh, marrying his wife, and his father-in-law was the one who taught him. Um, but it's not unheard of that a stranger can come in and be an apprentice and learn specifically. Uh, and that's kind of the way that I would sum it up. It's very much an apprenticeship. You have to seek it out on your own. Um, and it takes the work of both uh, the apprentice and uh, the master to kind of keep that knowledge going, to teach the proper techniques, to see how to identify the proper medicinal remedies and sing the proper songs and learn the proper languages. Yes. All right. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it's actually, I think, very comforting to know that that's still happening because I think all knowledge started that way yeah. in some way, in some form. It's rare to find it still going that way, though. Yes, I, I, I definitely think it's very comforting. And actually, I think, I think you'll like this. One of the main reasons I actually set out to do this research was this kind of weird stereotype that this language was dying and going extinct. But it's very much not. Yeah. Um, it's, if anything, it's actually evolving more. It's growing with new linguistic features, with new 
uh, uh, forms of metaphor. It's using different methods of grammar. It, and a specific idea actually um, is the idea of coinization, which is literally the evolution of language. A coin in linguistic terms is the predecessor word for how a word changes. So, for instance, dog at one point in English used to mean a specific breed, but then it became generalized and became all forms of canines. Um, and all of these forms that I found of my uh, sample are in some form or another showing evidence that they are evolving as a coinized form of language and they're moving on that spectrum of the mesolect as I mentioned earlier. They're changing and adapting, whether that be a little bit more Spanish or even more indigenous. Um, but new forms nonetheless are arising and it is very much the same when it comes to uh, Adolfo and his legacy of essentially preserving the spiritual knowledge because he's not the only shaman in the region. I know of at least three specifically that were in the Tamshiaco Tawayo region where I was, but there are many more that travel uh, between international borders, just through the Amazon in their own time, as kind of their travels of learning other cultures, of documenting it, and actually practicing it. Um, so, yeah, that's all still very much alive and well. Excellent. Well, um... I think we did cover everything I was hoping to survey. Yes, I may be a little lengthy, but I am trying to get all areas that would probably be in your interest of coverage. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're perfectly fine. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to throw out there? Anyone you wanted to... Um, any way you want someone to be able to reach you? Any? Um, I know that you said that you want... Um, that I was going to post a link to your paper or... Um, are you on academia.edu with your papers? Uh, I'm or? not here. I never got the chance to publish my paper yet. It's all ready to go. I've just never had the chance yet. Uh, life kind of came first, and I did its own thing. Well, academia is like a um, it's a website where it's like a peer review, um, informal yeah, platform. It, when, when life gives me the chance to actually do that, I certainly will. It's just I'm kind of all over the place at the moment. I'm but, well aware. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and at the moment, if, um, if you would like anyone who's listening to this to engage in your own and primary sources, I would definitely look for Paul Beaver. Um, uh, he's the author of... Um, uh, 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 what is it? A Jungle uh, Guide... or in the Amazon, uh, I'll, I'll send you his book. I have it. Um, I can put the description, author, all that in the uh, yeah. But anyway, Paul, Paul Beaver is the scientist who and the owner of Amazonian Expeditions. He's uh, fairly easy to get in contact with or with his company. And I mean, if you want to go down yourself, the lodge is open for anyone. Um, it is a tourist spot. And it's right there next to Chino Village. It's like five minutes away, right next to uh, Adolfo, who lives there in Chino Village, and the uh, the Rebareños people who I am talking about. Excellent. Um, and other than that, I'll give you a list of my sources, and I think that's pretty much it. Would, uh, would you want people to be able to reach out to you? Um, uh, sure. If individuals have questions for me, um, uh, send you my email. Um, if you want me to 
actually say it. Sure. Uh, that's christianb2194 at yahoo.com. Um, and I'm happy to answer anyone's questions, but it would take a little while for me to actually re-dig up all of my notes. It's been a while, and like I said, life kind of took me in a different direction. <laughs> That's, and uh, if anybody's uh, just casually interested in getting into this on the first time, I do recommend taking a look at a book called The Sea in the Jungle by H.M. Tomlinson. It's uh, not a very well-known book, but it is an excellent book by a uh, it's a memoir by an amateur cartographer in the 1860s who went along the Amazon, um, just kind of surveying the rubber industry and the uh, native population there. And it's, uh, I think, much better than Heart of Darkness, my own personal opinion, yep. <laughs> which is what everyone else reads about this, um, the history of that region, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, there's there's better, better sources out there. So, um... Let me just get my housekeeping notes up here. You can find us on Facebook at Drinks with God, and you can find us on Twitter at Drinks W God. And please subscribe to our Podbean page, which you're probably listening to this on, unless you're listening to us on Twit on uh, iTunes. You can listen to us on iTunes now. And please go to our Red Bean page where you can buy some T-shirts which say things like Manic Pixie Dream Nilist and Ask Me About My Death Anxiety. And they're available at redbubble.com slash people slash drinks with God. And if you have had an alternative theological experience or if you can provide an in-depth viewpoint of mainstream religion, please email me at drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. Again, that is drinkingwithgod at gmail.com. Thank you, and stay weird out there. Oh, mm-hmm.